Hello and welcome back to The Anthill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm your host, Annabelle Bly. We're back with a new series called Medicine Made For You. Over the next three episodes, we'll take a deep dive into the future of healthcare and how it could soon get a lot more personal. We'll be hearing from lots of academic experts in this series, from geneticists and cancer doctors to nutritionists and gut bacteria experts, and from chemists to social scientists. In this first episode, we're going to be looking at genes, clinical trials, and how possible it might be for the NHS to take on a more personalised approach when it comes to our healthcare. With me in the studio is the wonderful Holly Squire, Society and Health Editor at The Conversation. So the story we're going to hear today, Holly, starts off on a personal note for you. Yeah, I think generally speaking, your health is something that you tend to just take for granted. You just expect your body to work until one day you wake up and it doesn't. And that's basically what happened to me. So what actually happened? I was training for a marathon. I was training really hard. I was running in the rain. It was winter. It was cold. I got run down. You just sort of hope you're going to get better, don't you? Basically, it just didn't go away. I developed bladder infections, kidney infections, pneumonia. From there, the decline happened quite quickly. I was bedbound. I struggled to walk. And I basically felt like I had the flu all the time. I was chronically fatigued. And I just felt really, really rubbish. So, okay, talk us through what happened. You went to the doctor, I'm assuming. What did they say? Yeah, I went to the doctor and to start off with, they were really good. They were really helpful. They did the tests. They gave me antibiotics. They hoped that that would sort out the problem. Unfortunately, it didn't. And the more antibiotics I took to help tackle the kidney infections and the bladder infections, the more sick I became. It felt like my body, as well as battling these infections, was also struggling to cope with the amount of antibiotics that I was taking that were damaging my gut and that were making me actually then develop other infections alongside the existing infections. So what was the actual diagnosis in the end? I was diagnosed with antibiotic-resistant infection, which basically means that the bacteria in my body that the antibiotics were trying to treat have actually mutated as a result of taking so many antibiotics. And they've mutated so much now to the point that they are actually beyond antibiotic treatment. So this is something that does actually occur quite naturally. Lots of our listeners have probably heard about antibiotic resistance, but I don't think people realise that it can happen so easily to you. So how long did it actually take you to get a diagnosis in the end? It probably took about four and a half years for me to actually find out what was wrong with me or one of the bits that was wrong with me. In this time, I did receive other diagnoses, but they were very sort of broad, encompassing diagnoses that basically mean we're not really sure what to do with you. Here's some immunosuppressants and some steroids and a wheelchair. Off you go. Do you know why they couldn't get to the bottom of what was wrong with you? Yeah, I mean, at one point, I'm, I must have been under the care of about 12 different specialists. And I think part of the problem was that all these different specialists didn't necessarily talk to each other. So one person would maybe find out something else, but then that wasn't necessarily picked up or that was out of the other person's area. I was declining much quicker than I could actually see people as well. So 
quite often with the NHS, you have to wait to actually see a doctor or to get a specific test done, or you see one doctor, and then you have to see someone else for a test. And the combination of not having appropriate treatment, still taking a lot of antibiotics in the hope that it would do something, led to this point where I was unable to walk and ended up sort of pretty much bedridden. Okay, so I guess there was some relief in some sense at finally getting your diagnosis, but what did that actually mean for helping you get better? I got to the point where I am today through taking a much more sort of personalised approach. I would research lots of different scientific papers, read lots of scientific journals and just basically try to get to the bottom of what was wrong with me. In that time, I also found lots of different doctors and specialists in this area who would work with other patients similar to me. A lot of these people I did have to pay for to see privately. These weren't options that were available on the NHS. And as a result of seeing these different doctors and specialists, I also embarked in different testing methods. I did DNA testing. I've done sort of much more precise blood testing. And basically, as a result of working with these different experts and specialists, I have now come up with a tailor-made medication and supplement regime that is basically just for me. So it's based on my blood work results. It's based on my samples that have been sent off to labs. And it's based on some of my DNA profiling as well. So is there a near future where we could see this kind of thing becoming the norm, becoming available on the NHS? You know, it's not actually that far off. These types of tests, DNA tests, this much more sort of precise approach is known within the NHS and wider health field as precision medicine. And Scotland seems to be leading the way in this area. So I went up there to speak to some academics and find out what's happening in precision medicine in Scotland. So I'm just on the train on the way up to Glasgow and I thought it was worth me pointing out that when it comes to talking about this area of medicine, there's a lot of overlap between the terms precision medicine, personalised medicine and even individualised medicine. Some people use the terms interchangeably, but others think personalised medicine or individualised medicine makes it sound as though treatments and preventions are being developed uniquely for each person whereas the reality is that it's more about identifying which approaches will be effective for patients based on genetic, environmental and lifestyle factors. This can make it a bit confusing for patients, so when I arrived in Glasgow, this was one of the first things I wanted to find out more about. My name is Anna Dominczuk. I am a vice-principal at the University of Glasgow, Regius Professor of Medicine at Glasgow and Head of College of Medical, Veterinary and Life Sciences. So precision medicine means the right drug for the right patient at the right time. That's a very sort of simplistic descriptor of what precision medicine is. But really, this is a way to bring all early diagnosis ability to use not only modern medicine, but modern biology, modern machine learning, artificial intelligence, all together to help to diagnose disease very early, to prevent it, and to treat it right without any adverse reactions, to do stuff much better for patients. And when you talk about 
personalized medicine. It looks like you're developing it for one patient, which is not true because for the majority of diseases we work on, in all these conditions, you have millions of people around the world who would benefit from these developments. So we think that personalized, it's selling it a little too narrowly. When you talk about precision medicine, whether it's in the United States, China, everywhere in between, everybody understands what you're talking about. So throughout this episode, I'll be using the term precision medicine just to try and make things a bit simpler. I also wanted to know from Anna, why Scotland? What is it about this country with a poor health record that has the potential to play a huge role in transforming the way healthcare is delivered in the future? The quality of Scottish health data is very high, goes back many, many years, and every individual in Scotland, all of us, have so-called CHI number, Community Health Index, and you can follow all health events from pre-birth, for example, from antenatal care to ageing and other things that happen at the other end of medicine, And everything can be linked. And that's why people who want to develop precision medicine come to Scotland because they know about these abilities. So we're very well positioned. But I think also the whole of UK is very well positioned because, of course, NHS is prevalent and you could follow individuals throughout their life every time they need something from the healthcare. Okay, so I'm understanding why Scotland and starting to get a sense now of how this might work in practice. But I guess I actually want to know a bit more about what happens behind the scenes. So I'm going to visit Glasgow Precision Oncology Laboratory to find out more. I'm Dr Susie Cook, the Head of Medical Genomics at the Glasgow Precision Oncology Laboratory. So we're in the kind of first room in our sequencing facility, which is where the samples arrive and are put into storage in this minus 80 freezer until they're ready to be batched up uh, and go through the sequencing workflow. So we have a couple of robots in this room and they're here to pick the samples that we need. Everything comes in barcoded so that we have full traceability as it's processed. And these pick out the barcodes that we've identified that we want to sequence ready for the first step in the workflow. And where are all the samples coming from? So predominantly um, the samples come from Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. So the laboratory genetics department down there have really good processes uh, for extracting DNA. Uh, So they do the extractions, send the DNA up here, and then we do the sequencing. So as the first step in the workflow, the DNA that comes in needs to be broken down into lots of small fragments. And it's those uh, fragments that we then sequence. So the machine we have here is a sonicator and it uses sound waves to disrupt the DNA. So this is our kind of workhorse robot. It does um, large amounts of the processing of the samples. So the fragmented DNA goes in here um, and this robot automates the whole process of adding um, adapters onto the ends of those DNA fragments and turning them into a sequencing library ready to go on the next generation sequencing machines. And this robot can process batches of 96 samples at a time. This machine runs the process over a couple of days. Okay. So we tend to do maybe two, three batches a week. So that's quite a lot in terms of volume. It is, yeah. So um, if you think about the number of patients who might need this kind of genomic profiling, um, then you only need a couple of labs like this to serve the whole Scottish population. 
One of our big platforms at the moment is the Precision Pank Clinical Trials platform. Um, and that runs as a kind of umbrella uh, master protocol where all the patients with pancreatic cancer who sign up to the trial get a biopsy taken and sequenced. And then that feeds into a whole uh, kind of portfolio of interventional, medicinal, therapeutic clinical trials underneath. So those trials can be set up based on the, the sequencing profile to either use that profile to get patients onto the trial, use it to stratify patients within the trial, or randomise patients to treatment arms, but then look in that profile for markers of who's responding and who's not responding to those treatments. So it supports all designs of clinical trials underneath. So this is the sequencing lab. So this is where all of our next generation sequencing machines uh, sit. So we have the net seats here, which are kind of small throughput. So if we need to do rapid turnaround to get results back very quickly, then we can run a small number of samples very fast on these machines through our high seek and up to our biggest capacity machine, uh, which is our uh, NovaSeq. So this one can run multiple whole, whole genome sequences um, at the same time, so it's got a huge capacity. It's quite noisy in here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a pretty constant kind of background hum from these machines. They're actually mostly on standby or washing at the moment. They have to be kept really clean to make sure that there's um, no contamination coming through the runs and that everything's, everything's working smoothly. And how long does the process in here take? So you bring samples in here and then sort of what happens from there? So the samples get loaded onto the sequences and then they run from either a few hours up to about 24 hours, depending on how much data you want to generate. The data from these goes down to our server room. We have high volume data storage. Obviously, these generate a huge amount of data. And from there, it gets picked up by the software pipeline that we've developed to analyze this type of data gets automatically processed to the variant calls, which are what you need to interpret to understand what's going on in that cancer and which drugs it might respond to. As we left the sequencing room and headed towards the lift, I wanted to get a sense from Susie as to where things are actually at at the moment. I'll let Susie tell you more. So within our trials platforms at the moment, then the regulatory environment means that the results that we generate, we can't directly influence patient care. Okay. So most of what we do here is around the clinical trial space, identifying new biomarkers that could be used in clinical practice, and also building out the workflows and the kind of reagents that would be needed to deliver this in the hospital space. So at the moment, we've developed um, the product that we call the Glasgow Cancer Tests, which we designed specifically to be able to take this type of um, data from the research space into the clinical space. So it's a product that would allow a lab with a huge patient population but a limited budget to deliver the full range of genomic information that you would need to direct a cancer patient's care, both in terms of kind of diagnosis prognosis, prediction of what treatment they would respond to, and also prediction of what treatment they wouldn't respond to. So they don't waste time getting treated with toxic drugs that aren't actually um, going to help manage their cancer. As Susie showed me around the rest of the lab, we talked about some of the barriers to precision medicine. Susie also spoke about the current so-called trial and error method of treatment and the fact that 90% of the top-selling drugs only work for 30 to 50% of patients. This was something I wanted to know more about, so we headed back to Susie's office to talk some more. 
One of the big commitments in Scotland from our chief medical officer at the moment is uh, realistic medicine, which is kind of the same as precision medicine. It's about giving patients the treatments that they need when they need them based on good information about whether they're likely to respond and whether they're likely to experience side effects uh, and benefits from that treatment. So that's the whole philosophy in healthcare at the moment, that actually you need to give the patients the information and help them to make decisions about what's right for those based on both medical benefits but also their kind of lifestyle choices. And side effects are quite a big issue, aren't they? I think I was reading some stats that this surprised me quite a lot that was sort of looking at the trial and error medicine and saying that basically in instances of cancer, only 25% of patients actually respond to their treatment. That's right. I mean, I found that like mind-blowing. I think you just expect that you're diagnosed and you get the treatment and that... It should work. I mean, I think that's the the starting point that most people are coming from with Mm. this. Yeah, and there has been a lot of improvement in cancer treatments and outcomes over the last few decades. But I think what we have to say when we look at that is also actually 165,000 people a year in the UK are still dying of cancer. You know, 28% of people have cancer as the cause of death on their death certificate. And that the UK is lagging behind other countries in cancer outcomes. So, yes, we've done good work, but we still actually need a really big shift to make a big step change um, in those remaining statistics. And that is all going to be about identifying the the therapies we have now, the 25% of people who respond. Let's find them and keep giving them those treatments. But everyone else, let's stop giving them those treatments because they don't work and they might have side effects and they certainly cost the NHS a lot of money and instead focus on finding something that is going to be effective for those patients. Something Susie had also touched on was the fact that clinical trials were crucial to this process. But I wanted to understand more about how and why. Luckily, the perfect person to help me with this was just a bit further down the corridor. Thinking about clinical trial options right at the beginning is really important. That's Andrew Biankin. Andrew is a surgeon scientist whose work focuses on improving outcomes for patients with cancer. Andrew believes that clinical trials should be embedded into the health system and should come at the start of treatment, not at the end, as is often the case with cancer. We work a lot with our patients and we ask them from a patient perspective, what are they interested in, what would be good for them? And there's two things that constantly come out. We want access to new treatments and we don't want those types of treatments that are going to give us a couple of weeks extra. We, we want to go for the home run. And there's the sort of two messages they constantly tell us. 165,000 people a year run out of options and die of cancer. How can they get access to new therapies? Our strategy is that we start from clinical trials and where we try and offer every patient a, a trial option. Instead of asking a patient whether they would like to be on clinical trials at the very end of their diagnostic process, We ask them right at the beginning and say, we suspect you have pancreatic cancer. We're not 100% sure, but if we do both your clinical trial preparation in parallel to your clinical preparation, when it's time to decide your treatment, you'll have clinical trial options. One thing we've heard is that there's sort of the perception of, oh, it's a trial, I'm I'm a guinea pig. That attitude is, is changing dramatically because the drugs we have now are so much better than the drugs that used to be in the past. And it's been proven scientifically. Patients on a control arm of a clinical trial do better and have better outcomes than patients that aren't on a clinical trial, if you balance everything else up. 
Okay, so clinical trials at the start of treatment make sense to me. And speaking to Andrew was really helpful to get more of an idea as to how this would work. I've also arranged to speak to someone who's actually been on a clinical trial. And I'm hoping she'll be able to tell me a bit more about what it was like and the difference it's made to her life. It's basically saved my life, or at least extended it and given me a really, really good quality of life for the last four years. Prior to that, I was just on chemotherapies. That's Leslie Stevens. Five years ago, she was given months to live after she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Chemo wasn't working, and Leslie went on what she thought would be her last holiday together with her family. But thanks to a clinical trial, Leslie saw a dramatic turnaround in symptoms, and she told me that her cancer is now classed as stable. Just being on chemotherapy after chemotherapy is an absolutely miserable, horrible way to live. And although... With stage four cancer, it can't be cured. The hope is that you can extend your life and live well with a reasonable quality of life, which chemo doesn't give you for as long as possible. And just by pure luck, by pure chance, I got on a clinical trial, a phase one clinical trial, and have had an an amazing response to it and been on that trial now for over four years. Leslie explains that part of the problem with clinical trials is that it's not easy for patients to find out about them and consultants often don't talk about the options, possibly, Leslie believes, because of some of the stigma attached to this idea of being a research guinea pig. There are also often quite strict requirements about who can and cannot enter onto a trial. The sicker you are, the less likely you are to be able to participate. And research from 2019 also found that older patients, specifically those over 65, are still being left out of clinical cancer trials. Alongside standard treatment, which is often chemotherapy, you should be also offered a clinical trial as well. I think many patients have no understanding of clinical trials. They think they'll be given a placebo, which with advanced cancer you will never be given a, a placebo. They think it's a last resort. And if you leave it too late in your kind of treatment journey, you will be too ill probably to be accepted onto the trial because there's certain criteria that you have to meet. Um, I would like to see those criteria slightly relaxed, but that's another issue. So I think the earlier that consultants talk about research and trials with their patients, the better. But again, not all consultants do that. Not all of them are very research-focused. So there's a whole lot of cultural issues around getting patients onto trials. But if you then introduce on top of that genomic testing before you access a trial, then that will, you know, absolutely pinpoint whether that drug is, that treatment, that trial is likely to work for you or not. So I think that, I think the genomic testing, that's something that we need to look at doing much more of. The Anthill is produced by The Conversation, a news and analysis website that gives a voice to academic experts from around the world. To get a free roundup of expert analysis and opinion into your inbox every morning, subscribe to our daily newsletter by going to theconversation.com and clicking Get Newsletter at the top of the page. Or follow the link in the show notes to The Anthill. So I'm just in the taxi having said goodbye to Leslie. And I think for me, her story shows how much difference this way of treating people can actually make. But... I guess I'm also thinking about the fact that Leslie spoke a lot about how she had to do so much of her own research in all of this, finding those clinical trial options for herself. 
and I guess it just got me thinking a bit more about some of those barriers and how far things still need to go. And I was just chatting with the taxi driver now about it, who hadn't actually heard of precision medicine before. And I was saying to him that despite all of these sort of barriers that are in place, a lot of people who work in this area believe that 10 years from now, precision medicine will just be the new normal, not just for cancer, but for all sorts of other diseases. And the person who I'm going to talk to next is one of them. So I guess it'll be really interesting to find out where he sees us being in a sort of decade or so from now. I think in future this will be the norm. I think at the moment we're at very early days of a revolution. But in a, a number of years' time we will look back and say, do you remember the days when we didn't actually know the molecular makeup of a person before we gave them a drug? And we'll just shake our heads and scratch our chins and say, those were difficult days, weren't they? That's Ian McInnes. He's Professor of Experimental Medicine at Glasgow and Director of the Institute of Infection, Immunity and Inflammation. His research looks at improving the quality of lives for people with a range of chronic diseases. In particular, he's developing precision medicine-based strategies for people suffering from arthritis, strategies that he calls a revolution in healthcare. I think in future this will be the norm. I think at the moment we're at very early days of a revolution, but in a, a number of years' time we will look back and say, do you remember the days when we didn't actually know the molecular makeup of a person before we gave them a drug? And we'll just shake our heads and scratch our chins and say, those were difficult days, weren't they? Now, of course, this is actually a really exciting time. I wouldn't wish to be remotely pessimistic. A lot of chronic inflammatory arthritis uh, conditions are really giving up their secrets. We've got great medicines now that we didn't have a decade ago. We have strategies to use them, but these are clinical algorithms. They're not really based on the individual, they're based on group level data. Ten years from now, we'll look back and say, thank heavens I can make an individualised decision, and what a difference that'll make. The application of a, an effective precision medicine tool will significantly reduce the cost of care. You're reducing the likelihood of a non-response. You're reducing the poorer quality of life that is suffered by a person who has a known response, that costs money. We've got to look after that individual while they remain unwell. We're reducing the likelihood of a side effect. Side effects cost not only quality of life, which is a physician's my first priority, but it actually costs the health service money to manage that. And most of the predictions are that an effective precision medicine instrument will, in the long term, save substantial sums of money for the National Health Service and, of course, the health budgets in many countries beyond. So I'm just on the train now, leaving Glasgow, and I'm just sort of reflecting on my time here. I guess, you know, all the people that I've spoken to really do believe that within the next five to ten years that precision medicine will be a reality and I guess in that sense the prospects for patients are quite dazzling but I'm also conscious that everyone I've spoken to so far is very pro-precision medicine so I think when I get back home it will be really useful to talk to someone with a different take. Okay so I've just got home. Hi dog! Hi, cat. Okay, I'm just going to dump my stuff. And... Right, I'm just going to stick the kettle on. And then I'll talk you through who I'm speaking to next. Because I think I found someone who will be ideal. 
Um, so yeah, I was researching on the train and I found an academic at Oxford who's actually written for us quite recently. And his whole piece was in defence of imprecise medicine and the benefits that routine treatments for common diseases can offer. So I've arranged to give him a video call this afternoon. Hi, Stephen. Let me just turn on your sound and maybe then you can just start by introducing yourself. And then I guess we'll just get into talking a bit more about your thoughts on precision medicine. Okay. Stephen McMahon, Principal Director of the George Institute for Global Health and Professor of Medicine at the University of Oxford. So I think placing too much emphasis on the potential role of precision medicine at this point in its development would be mistaken. I mean, certainly, I think the primary focus, certainly if we take chronic diseases, which kill most people uh, in the UK and elsewhere, the primary target for health systems in terms of delivering treatment has to be on improving the care of patients who are at risk of or who have common chronic conditions because that is the biggest burden of disease. That's what causes uh, most premature death. It causes most disability. And that has to be front and centre of the health system. That's not to say it shouldn't have an interest in uh, new ways of treating rare diseases. Uh, I mean, for example, certain sorts of breast cancer, which are susceptible to genetic factors. But again, these account for a very small component of overall premature death and disability compared with heart disease, lung disease, cerebrovascular brain disease. I mean, th these are the really big diseases. And we just can't take our eye off that ball. It's critical that we don't uh, get bored with it, that we don't think we've done enough. Um, and I think there is a risk here that that is happening Certainly, across the medical profession at the specialist level, there is a belief that this is the future. And that may be true for some diseases, but if that holds us back from improving the care that we can provide with imprecise, perhaps boring medicine, then I think we have a big problem. So if not precision medicine, then what do you think the NHS and sort of other health services around the world should be aiming for? I think it's getting the balance right. Um, and I think it is ensuring that the role of precision medicine is not too quickly transferred from you know a research question to a healthcare question and i think it's that balance that's most important but i hear people say that well you know i, I might not have to change my lifestyle as much as some people believe because i think by the time you know, I'm at risk of heart disease, there'll probably be a cure for me that's going to, you know, target my genes and I'll be okay. I mean, that's just anecdotal, but I think there are risks about getting the balance in the messaging wrong, whether it's at the population level or indeed at the health service level. So that was really interesting speaking to Stephen just then. It's clear he obviously has some big reservations about the impact of precision medicine. And I guess it also got me thinking about some of the other areas that seem problematic to me such as, I guess, patients' willingness to be on board, what with issues surrounding data breaches, privacy, security, and just the ethical implications as well involved in actually dealing with people's genomes. Then, of course, there's also the consideration of where's all this data going to go, because for this to work, vast databases will need to be set up that can store all this data safely and efficiently, 
And this was something that I had actually spoken with Susie about back in her office in Glasgow. It's kind of inevitable that IT will migrate into a cloud-based service and there are cloud providers who can meet all of the requirements of the government and the NHS for data security and data privacy. And to be honest, if you look at the big cloud providers, they have the world-leading IT expertise and data security expertise um, and that's really where the capacity is going to come from I think. I'm not a very patient person and I want this kind of change to happen within our lifetime so that we can really see the magnitude of the difference that this has made and I think this technology can do that. We just have to make the most of this opportunity. I guess that's it then, isn't it? For this opportunity to work, it's clearly about embracing tech at scale. And though the barriers might seem huge at this point, the prospects for patients are pretty amazing. But I think it's also important to keep in mind what Stephen was saying, that in many instances, the current approaches can and do save lives. And I guess the point he made as well about people thinking precision medicine can right all their wrongs and that they don't have to bother looking after themselves was really interesting. But I guess for me as well, keeping my own health issues in mind, it feels like the fact that there are these tools to help doctors better understand the drivers of disease in patients and that could offer the opportunity to select treatments that increase the likelihood of better outcomes is definitely positive. I guess it's also just about being mindful that this isn't a cure-all. What has become clear to me on this journey is that if precision medicine is to be rolled out more widely, it will fundamentally change the way medicine is practised. There's no question about that at all. I guess the question remains, though, whether by that point we'll just be calling it medicine anyway. Holly, you're back from Scotland. It does seem as though precision medicine could really flip the script on conventional treatments. But on the other hand, scientists are still trying to figure out just how far it can go and how to make it work for everyone. Yeah, that's exactly it, Annabelle. It's still early days, but the technology is changing and it's progressing at such a rapid pace And things that didn't seem imaginable just a decade ago, such as DNA sequencing, tissue engineering and gene editing, are all now a reality. And how does this all tally with your own experiences? I think for me, if there's an easier way for patients to engage with this more sort of technological side of healthcare, then that's a huge step in the right direction. I know not everyone thinks like that, but for me, the more personal approach has been the one that's made the biggest difference. And is there anything else that you're trying on this personalization front? I had actually planned to include some details about some of the latest tests that I've been doing. So basically, I've sent off some of my bodily samples to the US for what's known as deep shotgun metagenomic sequencing. Deep shotgun metagenomic sequencing? Yeah, it's quite the mouthful, isn't it? But Basically, this sequencing service can identify every known bacteria, fungus, DNA virus and parasite in a sample. This can be anything from urine, blood, stool, breast milk, spit, nasal swabs. Basically, if it can be swabbed or cupped, then they can test it. 
So what are they trying to find out with all of this information? So basically, you provide a sample or samples. The laboratory extracts genetic information and generates raw sequence data from all these microorganisms found. And that then allows them to identify what pathogens you have in your sample. Right. And then you get a report telling you what's what. So they'll tell you what's being found, what the basically problem areas are, what pathogens you have in your body. But they'll also recommend treatments that would help deal with those pathogens. So you mentioned your results. What, what have they found out? I wish I could tell you. But unfortunately, my results have been held up at customs. So my samples were stopped uh, I hope the customs officer enjoyed opening that package is all I'm saying. Uh, so basically, yeah, I have to do it all over again now. It's a really good highlighter, the fact that these things are difficult and problematic to do by yourself and how much better it would be if they were part of a mainstream health system. And in the meantime, you're just kind of bashing on regardless. Yep, I'll just be carrying on. Uh, my health is sort of very much stable now. I still have to be careful, but day to day, I'm sort of pretty functional. I will just be continuing with my usual protocols. A big part of that for me is about improving my gut health. Your gut health? My gut health. And that is something we are going to be exploring a lot more of in our next episode of the series, which is all about personalised nutrition. Not Holly's this time, but another one of my colleagues who has been doing some experiments on themselves. Right, I am sitting down on day one to eat my first set of breakfast muffins. They look really and smell really inedible, but that might be because yesterday, having been at the clinic, I was quite sick having eaten my breakfast muffins and my lunch muffins. So let's see what happens. So I have 10 minutes to eat these. They smell quite eggy. And this is all I'm allowed to eat for four hours. Right, it's for science. That's it for this first episode of Medicine Made For You, a series from The Anthill. To make sure you don't miss this or any of the future episodes of Medicine Made For You, subscribe to The Anthill wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find all the episodes on theconversation.com, along with more articles from academics talking about precision medicine. A big thanks to everyone at Glasgow and Oxford who helped to make this episode a reality and to the journalism department at City, University of London for letting us use their studios. And thanks to our conversation colleagues, Clint Witchells and Zoe Jazz. Medicine Made For You is produced and edited by Gemma Ware and Holly Squire. If you like The Anthill, please give us a review on Spotify or iTunes. It really does help. If you have any questions about the series, you can get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com or reach us on Twitter at Anthill Pod. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.